Okay, we, today we are in Haggai. How many of you have ever read Haggai? Oh, we have like one more than in the first service. <laughs> How many of you have ever studied it? That's like, yeah, we had one in the first service, one in the second service. Well, shame on you. It's part of the Bible. No, I'm just kidding. It's one of those little minor prophets that you don't pay much attention to. And yet it's actually a very important one once again. So we're working, for those of you that are visitors, we're working through the minor prophets. Because when you put all the minor prophets together, there's 12 of them, over 300 years. You see God's patience. You also see his compassion and his love. You see the way he relates to his people when uh, they turn away from him. So we've worked our way through. But the good news is, is that we're now out of the exile. We're done. The destruction of the temple is now 70 years in the past. The people are back in the land when Haggai writes. So from here on out, for the rest of the minor prophets, we have five left counting today. You're going to see the message turn, not so much focused on judgment, but focused more on hope and the coming Messiah and what God has planned. He has not forgotten his people. He never forgets his people. And we're going to see some of those messages begin to emerge. So the uh, Babylonians, remember, they took down the Assyrians and then the Babylonians destroyed the southern kingdom. Well, the Persians came along and they destroyed the Babylonians. You know, nothing new under the sun. Pretty soon the Greeks will do that and then the Romans come along and do it. And, and, you know, the world's all about power and money and control. Get used to it, okay? That's just the way it is until the Lord comes back. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. So the Persians defeated the Babylonians in 539 B.C. under King Cyrus. And one year, within a year, he immediately issued a proclamation. We actually have a copy of it recorded on a, um, uh, a, a pottery type of thing that, uh, where that was issued and sent around, where he immediately released all the captives. So the Assyrians, their foreign policy was to take a nation and scatter them around so they lose their identity. The Babylonians, their policy was they could allow them to group together, but they couldn't go back into their homeland. The Persians came along and they said, everybody go home. Okay, it's fine. We'll take care of you. We'll control you. Just go home. So that's what happened. So the people started coming back into the land. So that happened in 538 BC. So now, 18 years later, Haggai writes in 520, we know because he gives us a very clear marker of when he wrote. He wrote four little messages in these two chapters, and he gives us a date. So it's very helpful for us. All four were in 520 BC, so 18 years later. So he writes, he gets a message from the Lord for them about every other month, or month and a half, two months, and gives us information. And so, um, the, the, like I said, the exile is now over. The destruction of the temple is now 70 years in the past. This is all, uh, there's several, all these prophets now come together at the same time. So they're all within a short period of time. This is during the period of Ezra and Nehemiah. They came back, the Persians sent them back. Uh, Daniel, you may remember, was in the Persian Empire. Uh, Esther was in the Persian Empire. Um, All the minor prophets at the end are in the Persian Empire. So we know from Ezra and Nehemiah what happened during this time period. They came back into the land And they began to rebuild the temple and rebuild the city walls around Jerusalem to protect it. Well, the people around them didn't like that. And they they put a lot of pressure on them. And so they stopped uh, rebuilding the temple. 
So it's now been about 15 years after they gave up on that project, and God wants to address that problem, okay? And that's one of the core things that Haggai wants to talk about. So we're now beginning to turn toward the future, and we're going to start laying foundations. You'll see this in just a minute of what transpired when Christ came in the New Testament, because he wants to give them hope. So um, the, the reason why the, the surrounding peoples put pressure on them not to build a temple is because the temple was a home of a god. And they didn't, they didn't need Israel to be focused on their god. And so they're pretty apathetic, quite honestly. Um, they're just not paying much attention anymore. They're just glad to get home and settle down and forget about God. And God wants to make sure that that doesn't happen. So 18 years later, under King Darius, who followed King Cyrus, that's how it begins in Haggai 1.1, in the second year of King Darius, okay? And then in each of these, he gives us precise days that he actually uh, received the prophecy from the Lord. That's how we can date it. So here's what he says. Uh, In verse 2, this is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Okay. Why is the temple so important? That's the first question we have to wrestle with for you to make sense of this. And then later on, what happens with Christ? Why the temple? Well, I mean, the temple, if we go all the way back to Leviticus, for those of you that were here two years ago, remember Leviticus was a gift from the Lord. None of the gods spoke. Well, we know there weren't any gods other than true God, but they didn't know that. Our God spoke and the people loved it. That's why Paul could say the law was holy, righteous, good. It's wonderful. David says, I love your law, Lord, because we have a God who actually spoke and said, here's what I want to do to have a relationship with you. Okay, so he goes to the whole book. And then when he gets to the end, there's a little bit of a problem because Israel is about to enter the promised land and they're going to scatter to all the regions of the promised land all throughout uh, the Israel region on the west and east side both. And so these people are going to scatter. And guess what? They don't have one of these with the, you know, Leviticus or Deuteronomy or none of that. They don't have that. Uh, they didn't even have a scroll. They couldn't afford it. And many of them couldn't even read. They were slaves. So how in the world are they going to remember 613 commands? How's that going to happen? And this was God's blessing at the end of Leviticus to make it possible. First thing he did was he chose one of the tribes, tribes of Levi, said, you're the priests. I'm going to scatter you through all the nation, all the different tribes, wherever they go. We're going to put priests here, here, priests here, priests here. So he had scattered around and the priests of the people that you could go to, they were to be the experts in the law that you could go to. If you have a problem, if your conscience is bothering you because of sin, for example, then the priest can help you with that. If you have issues, relational issues, then the priest was supposed to be able to adjudicate that with fairness. Well, the second thing he did was he established the temple in Jerusalem and Deuteronomy 12. That was the only place they could worship. They weren't allowed to offer sacrifices anywhere, anywhere outside the temple precinct in, in Israel. They had to gather three times to come together. And that was for the national purpose of kind of recalibrating and getting them to celebrate the festivals and dance and have fun. And the Lord said, don't worry about your crops and your animals. I'll take care of everything. You all gather nationally three times a year, and it's going to be a festival, a party. So they, they, had, they had three festivals at the beginning of the planting season. They had one festival in the middle of the planting season, and then three festivals at the end. So there's seven festivals. The three festivals at the beginning, that's where Passover occurred, to look back at God's faithfulness. He passed over their sins. He's taking care of them. 
And so that gives them the confidence as a nation to say, we can trust him for our crops, the rain and everything. In the middle of it, they have Pentecost. Okay, that's when all the plants are growing and you could see that God has blessed them because all of their fields are now full. They can't harvest it yet because they're first fruits. By the way, that's why we're called first fruits in the kingdom. Okay, and so now they can see that God has blessed them. So this is the one that focuses on the poor. Pentecost, the outpouring of God's blessing. That's when the spirit came. Passover is when Jesus died for our sins. Pentecost in the middle is to remind them of God's gracious outpouring of his glory. And that's when the Holy Spirit comes. And that's when they remember the poor. Every year they stop and they, we got to take care of the poor. Then you get to the end and you have three more festivals that can look back and say, well, God has really taken care of us. So now we can trust him for the future. So you have these three sets of festivals that remind the nation as a nation, they kind of recalibrate the nation every year to stay focused on the Lord. That's how the Lord took care of the problem of how do we get this wonderful law out into the nation regularly, okay? Now, the problem is there's no temple. That's the problem. They're back in the land, and they quit the project. Too much pressure, and they gave up. And so, um, I'm going to read chapter 1, verse 2. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time is not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Is that really the right time? Okay, so they were building their own houses. They're enjoying being back. They're building their prosperity again. And they're being very selfish. And they have no central point. And so the main point of his first message is that there's no temple, and that means there's no God-centered community. That's what it means. Okay, we don't have to dance too far down the line to give you a glimpse of what this is for. Right here. A Christ-centered community. This is why we gather regularly. I hear people, I, I don't need to go to church, I can find God in the mountains. That's true. But you can't find this. You can't find the love and the support and the care. You can't find any of that. Okay? And so a a temple for them meant a community that had a purpose. And it was tied around the living God. The one true living God. That was the purpose behind it. So you see the temple is a gift. But also at the same time... God is now beginning the process of both reconciliation and healing. Because a nation has been through a lot of rugged years. Seventy years ago, the Babylonians tore down Jerusalem and the temple. And they had been, uh, prophet after prophet had gone to them. And they had gone through a lot of rough stuff because of their sin. They turned away from the Lord, began worshiping all the gods of the Canaanite nations. And so God punished them as he said he would. So it's been a very rough time for uh, 300 years. And so now he's beginning the process of reconciliation and starting to heal them, and he has to bring them back together. So the result is of not having this temple as God intervenes in the process. Verse 5, now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought. He says this four times. Okay, think carefully about what is going on in your life 
and what I'm about to say to you. This is good advice for all of us today. Give careful thought. Every week we get into the word somewhere, and, uh, and I encourage you to think carefully about your own lives and what this means. So give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you're never warm enough. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. You lose all your money. Okay? That's the condition that they're in. The question is why? Why is that the case? When you go down to verse 11, God says, you see... Because of what you did, basically, I'm filling in this story for you. Because of what you did, and because you're not even interested in rebuilding my house, I titled this, uh, is a champion for the homeless. Who's the homeless? God. God should never, ever be homeless. You know, we've talked as elders, we laugh and joke, and the decisions we make, although they rely on faith, none of them are ever fatal. One of the elders said, is there ever a fatal decision we can make? And I said, yeah, take Jesus out of our doctrinal statement. That'd be fatal. But then you'll be looking for a new pastor anyway, so it won't matter. You just become a club at that point. So yeah, and this is what's happened. God is now out of the equation, okay? And he's reminding them of this. So here's, here's why all these conditions are true. This is the reason. He says, I called for a drought on the fields. Everywhere we look, God's making the same statement. I am God, you are not. I decide which nation to raise up, which nation to destroy. I decide who is rich. I decide who is poor. I decide, Exodus 3, who is blind. That's my decision. Remember when the father and John, when they asked the question, who sinned, this man or his parents uh, or son? And he said, neither. It was so that God could show you his glory. You see, God likes, he likes to remind us in every book. He is God and we are not. And we should be very mindful of that. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, the, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, everything else that the ground produces, people, livestock, all the labor of your hands. And so it's just a good reminder that God should not be homeless. The people are apathetic and he's trying to get their attention. And he's trying to wake them up and say, get back to holy living. Get back to this. Don't be fooled. Whatever wealth you have is because God has decided to bless you. It's not because of your own abilities. He may use your abilities, but it's his decision. I decide who is rich. I decide who is poor. He's very clear on that in other places. Don't be fooled. Don't get stuck in that apathy like these people are. I have everything I need. I don't need anybody else. No, you do, because you may lose it. You know, sat with a man when I was a VP of advancement. We sat down, and he was in the early, early stages of dementia, he and his wife. And he said, I'm worth $30 million. And he said, everything I touch turns to gold. He said, I've had 13 companies, and everyone sold for more of a profit. And now I'm uh, about 80, and a dementia is setting in. I'm struggling to remember things. And I have four kids, and none of them love the Lord. I would give it all away. 
I would give it all away. You know, I've heard so many stories like that over the years. So message number one, as long as God is homeless, we are apathetic or pathetic. Don't get, don't get lulled into that. Don't do it. Message number two is in chapter two. God has not forgotten his promises. So this is Haggai chapter two, verse five. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. Okay, pause. He takes them right back to the original promise. What was the original promise? The same covenant we have today. Okay. If you obey me, I will make you a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That was the promise. If you obey me. Peter says that exact same covenant in 1 Peter 2. Once you turn to Christ, we are that kingdom of priests. I've said many times that uh, some of you wish we had a prophet to stand up to our own government. We don't need it. Okay? We have an army right here. Right here. When I look at you, I see people scattered all around our county serving the Lord. Uh, Yesterday, we had a memorial service um, for a woman. And I asked them, please set aside your stereotypes of the Western church. Not because they're not true. They are. But it's because they shouldn't be true. And let's just take a glimpse of what authentic Christianity should be. And that's what happens when, when God is uh, with homeless. We turn to apathy. And so he's saying them, he's not forgetting his promise, he's not forgotten them. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt and my spirit remains among you. Do not be afraid. That command, by the way, is scattered all throughout the Bible. This is what the Lord Almighty says, in a little while I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations and what is desired by all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. Interesting. I will fill this house with glory. The glory of the Lord never returned. They get busy, and they rebuild the temple in five years. And the glory of the Lord never returned. Never did. It's empty today. The temple in Jerusalem. We'll come back to that. But then he goes on, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The psalmist says it this way, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. We've talked as elders many times, we have nothing to be afraid of, but we don't have to worry about the money. You guys are so generous. You bless us and make it possible for to do all the ministry that we're doing. Thank you. Thank you for that. You know, for those of you that give to uh, help the food bank that work there or give to it, thank you. For those of you that fill up our benevolence fund or are serving the benevolence committee, thank you. We gave $105,000. You want a good ministry? Give money to the benevolence fund. You know, there's plenty of poor for us to take care of, okay? And so you can give to, thank you for making that. For those of you that give to the missionaries that we support around the world, thank you. For those of you that make it possible for the staff to work, or for those of you that send me out to do teaching around the world, thank you for that. Okay, the Lord owns all of this. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. Okay, he just laid out a real simple principle that you see in Scripture. As you move through the Bible, the temple of God gets bigger and bigger and bigger. You start with a tent. And then from there in a the desert, you move to a tabernacle, which is in the center of the nation. 
And then from there you move to a, a temple which Solomon built. That's in the center of the nation. But they turned their hearts away and pursued all the other gods. They didn't want anything to do with the one true God. So the Babylonians came in and then destroyed it. So then all of a sudden, he begins to give us an, an indication, just a glimpse of what's coming. He says, this temple is going to be more glorious than the previous temples. So they built a temple, and the glory of the Lord never returned. Holy of Holies was empty. There was nothing in it. No ark that had been stolen. No seraphim. No glory. It's empty. You know when the glory of the Lord returned? When Jesus walked into the temple. We beheld his glory. And Jesus, and we're going to celebrate this in just a moment, he gave his body to create a new body, which is the spirit, spiritual temple. That's us. That's us. You see, we don't need prophets anymore. We have an army scattered all over the world. We got our little army right here in Dillon, Summit County. And so he's pointing us, starting to point us forward. And he goes on and says, I will grant peace. So God has not forgotten his promises. He's reminding the people, get out of your comfort, get out of your apathy, and build a temple. Because that became a model. It drew the nation back together again. So they did, and this becomes what we call the second temple. Okay? So if you're reading in your Bible, study Bibles or whatever, and you talk about the second temple period, it begins right here. This is the second temple. So then in message number three, he still has to deal with uncleanness and holiness. You see, the people are unclean, and holiness is still, holiness is still the requirement. So listen to what he says in chapter 2, verse 13. Haggai said, and he's in the middle of a conversation with the priest delivering the message. So Haggai said, if a person defiled uh, by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, holy things, does it become defiled? And the priest says, well, yes, it does become defiled. And he said, then Haggai said, so it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Wherever they go and, wherever they, and whatever they offer, there is defiled. The people still haven't, haven't figured out what holiness looks like yet. God is still holding them to the covenant as recorded in Leviticus, not the commands, not even the rituals, but the purpose behind it to make them a holy nation. Remember he said earlier, I hate your sacrifices. I hate them. I hate you killing all these animals. There's nothing here. So he's illustrating it, and it's not till Christ comes that we learn how true cleansing occurs. It occurs because of the Holy Spirit. That's why I can say to Peter, Peter, you're already clean. So we have a God who stepped into our world to make it happen through the Messiah. And this is giving them the early perspective of what's going to come. That's message three. Then message four, the Davidic line has been reestablished. Because of the last few kings who weren't very godly in, this, in the southern kingdom, the Davidic line came to a halt. But God took care of that. 
Here's what he says at the end of Haggai. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. You're wondering what's this got to do with the Davidic line? Hang in there. Tell Zerubbabel that I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. Listen to this language because this language occurs all throughout the New Testament in various places. I will overturn royal thrones. I will shatter the power of foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, and that happened throughout history, by the way, but this is pointing us to something far, far greater than this, what happens on the earth. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you my signet ring. That's where all the power is. Signet ring. For I have chosen you. Okay. What's this got to do with the line of David? Let me go back and read to you what he said about David. Second Samuel 7. It won't be up here. I just want you to hear the promise. So David had finished his house and the Lord brought peace all around him because he had been faithful. The Lord declares to you, this is Nathan the prophet delivering the prophecy. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors. I will raise up for you uh, your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He's pointing us to Jesus. That's why Paul can call us a spiritual house. That's why Hebrews said that through Jesus, he rebuilt the house at the Jerusalem Council in in Acts 19, that God has repaired and rebuilt the house of David. He goes on. He is the one who I will build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. He will be my son. That's quoted in Hebrews as a prophecy about Jesus. And at the end, he says, your house and your kingdom, David, will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. This is the reestablishing the Davidic line. You know why? In Matthew 1, when you trace the lineage from David to Jesus, and it goes through all the evil kings, Zerubbabel is listed. God did not forget his promise. The Messiah will come. And he's going to overturn all the powers, everything on the earth. Everything. Okay, how did he do it? Paul gives us insight in 2 Corinthians 10. He says, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. Pause. We've gone through 2 Corinthians 5.17 a gazillion times in 10 years. If anyone is in Christ, they're part of the new creation. The old has what? Say it. Gone. The new is here. Okay, but you know the verse before it? That's the one very few people know. Because of what Christ did on the cross, we no longer evaluate people according to the world's standards. You see, the world, the way the world works is to divide and fracture and label everybody, and that's what creates all the power differential. And that's how power is exercised. 
In our, in our memorial service yesterday, the lady that we honored, she had some significant challenges at the end of life. And I said, we're not going to define her by that. Just like we're not going to define you by that. I don't know what your failures are, but I know they're there. I got them. Okay? Do you want to be defined by your failures? No. You don't, do you? If anyone is in Christ, we no longer evaluate people according to the world's standards. The new has come. They're part of the new creation. So what defines you now is that you are a believer in Jesus. And your mistakes are very understandable. Well, that's what Paul's using here. He says, uh, um, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. We do not. Quit labeling people. Cut it out. I don't care if you're Democrat or Republican. It doesn't matter to me. I don't care if you're this end of the spectrum or that end of the spectrum. Jesus didn't come to win. He came to lose. I am the chief slave of the church. Whoever wants to be great in the kingdom must become the slave of all. And my request of you is that you become a slave for the sake of our people here in our county. Give up on the labels. The goal is not to restore America. That's the Lord's issue. The goal is to live faithful lives, authentic Christian lives. So I'll ask you to do the same. Set aside the stereotypes of the church, not because they're not true. That's not the reason. So that we can show the world what authentic Christianity really looks like. Loving and caring for people. We are citizens of heaven. Philippians 3. Oh, now don't get me wrong. I have desires about this country. I love my country. But I love the unsaved more. So he goes on with these incredible words. The weapons we fight are not the weapons of the world. Quit listening to podcasts. Except mine. (laughs) Quit listening to podcasts. Quit listening to the news. Unless you want entertainment, okay? These are not the weapons that we use. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. You see, our weapons are love. And the Holy Spirit. We have the uh, we have the same Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. Same Holy Spirit. It's not about politics. Don't place your hope in a certain president. Place your faith in God. So my request of you, just like them back in Haggai's day, is no different. Set aside the stereotypes. Quit bad-mouthing others. Don't criticize, don't judge. That's Jesus in Luke 6. Do not judge, do not criticize, do not condemn. Quit doing that. And let's show some county what it means to live authentic Christian lives. 
I took this job because I honestly believe when I looked at all the positions that were available to me that we could make a difference in this county. I've not changed my thought. Now that uh, time has gone by and I look out there, I see God's army scattered all around the, the county in various positions. I told you if you want to run for school board, run. Okay, we've had two here that ran, didn't make it, run again. Okay, you want to run for county commissioner? I don't care what you do. Just get out in the county and show them what authentic Christianity looks like because our weapons are love and we are to be the primary slaves of the county. That's why we're asking you to help us. Help us do that. Help us do that. And finally, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. God is sovereign. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you, Lord, as we walk through these minor prophets. We get to see a side of you and part of your heart that sometimes gets overlooked. That the way to win this county is through loving our people. So help us, Lord, as a church to continue to have that heart of love that heart of compassion and mercy, Lord. Um, and help us to remember our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not it. It's against the principalities. It's against Satan and his structures. Lord, we look forward to the day when the greed is all gone and the selfishness is all gone. But help us to be the instruments right here in your army to make that happen. In your son's name, we ask these things in faith. Amen.